for three years on AM radio, coast to coast, a live call-in back in the day. My brother Tom Gardner and I hosted the Motley Fool Radio Show, Saturdays, three hours through the afternoon. Thanks to our celebrated producer, longtime fellow fool Matt Greer, celebrated, I mean, we at least celebrate the guy. We did dozens of interviews with bright lights from Jeff Bezos to the San Diego Chicken. Our profile then rose higher when, with Mac, we transitioned the Motley Fool Radio Show from the world of AM radio to national public radio. For several years, we were an NPR show, and we began to bring in even more amazing guests. Well, that was then. This is now. We eventually transitioned our on-air presence from radio to podcasts, which we've loved bringing you for more than a decade and counting. But what should never be forgotten? The interviews we did with celebrities, major and mostly minor, from back in the day. It is a deep vault of audio gold. And in this fourth episode of the recurring series Blast from the Radio Past, our first return to this series since before the pandemic, we go back in time to listen in once again to the wisdom of Costco founder and CEO Jim Sinegal say, or to Loretta Lynn. Mystery Science Theater 3000 style a little bit as we listen again and opine. So a special treat for you this week. The gang's back together. My brother Tom Gardner, our producer Matt Greer, and me. And you only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. And welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Hey, Tom. Hey, Dave. Hey, Mac. Hey, David. Hey, Mac, I have a question for you. Fire away. Was three hours of live radio too much? Too much for America to handle? I think arguably probably two and a half hours. Too much, probably. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a delight to be joined again by this Motley Twosome. And we three, gentlemen, we're going to go back through clips from old Motley Fool radio shows. People still well-known today, most of them living. And we're going to have fun reflecting on the past. And Mac, the theme that you have selected, this is the fourth episode in the series, as I mentioned at the top. What is the theme, Mac, that you're bringing Tom and me and all of our listeners this week? David, the theme is 20 years ago. Most of the interviews we're going to hear are from 2003. A couple are from 2002. So let's go with 20 years ago. But if you don't like that theme, I have a couple of other themes. (laughs) Visions of the past, visions of the future. Wow. That's your second choice. That sounds like a National Geographic special. Thank you. And the third theme, always a solid go-to, more things that people said on full radio. Mm. Mm -hmm. Tom, Mm. can you you top either of those? No, I think I I like 20 years ago because 2003, the markets might be a little bit similar to where they are today. The NASDAQ and disarray technology companies. So we'll be hearing from people who were experiencing a market similar to the one that we're experiencing today. I like it. Well said. And gentlemen, I do want to say, I may not be the only one, or maybe I am, but I went back and listened to our most recent version of this, episode three. The date was February 11th, 2020. Sounds like about a month before we closed our offices and the world shut down. Yeah, that's what we did. And at the time, and I think a lot of people are expecting an update, Mac, now, three years later. At the time, there was a lot of discussion at the start of that podcast about the ownership of the following URL, and I would say internet domain property. 
MacGreer.com. I think it may have been Tom who all of a sudden just started talking about who owns MacGreer.com, who owns MacGreer maybe, but as it turns out, at the time anyway, Mac, nobody owned MacGreer.com. And Tom, you exhorted our listeners to go out and buy it, register it. Mac, any updates? David, I am really pleased to announce that to absolutely no one's surprise, it is still available. So <laughs> MacRear.com is wide open. And and that surprises me, Tom, because in a way, I think that is a, a testimony to maybe the lethargy or alienation of our listeners. Not a single person, not not a single one, nine bucks. Mm. Well, MacRear.com, you know, think of think of all the missed opportunities of great venture capitalists who had the chance to invest in Google and passed on it. So I don't think it's unusual that a lot of people wouldn't see this one yet, but someday we'll look back and remember that on in the month of March in 2023, somebody heard this conversation and realized, I can make a life, a career out of MacRear.com. <laughs> and, and indeed, that may happen this time. We'll see. We'll see. And Tom, you mentioned missed opportunities, so I need to confess that one other thing that came up on our last blast from the past is that Tom, at the end of the show, challenged me to book Queen Elizabeth. And well, I'm here to say that that is probably not going to happen, and it's for obvious reasons now. But I also want to tell you that the reason that we never booked Queen Elizabeth is that, well, it was completely for lack of trying. I had forgotten. I had forgotten about Tom's request. And so that didn't happen. But later in the show, we're going to hear from someone who was knighted by Queen mm. Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. You know, I think about Queen Elizabeth the way you hear Warren Buffett say, I will continue to manage Berkshire Hathaway 10 years after I've died. And I think that Queen Elizabeth continues to rule at this stage. And so we can commune with her here. And the only thing I want to observe as we now venture forward into the 20-year look back is this is, for those of you baseball fans, this is a very this is a baseball reference that will connect with about 2.4% of our listening audience right now. And that's <laughs> high for me, actually. This is a Louis Tiant windup to getting this show started. I think we've done a really nice job of revisiting a couple different angles. And now the pitcher is leaning forward and about to release the pitch. Love it. Tiant, who turned himself, he turned his back to the batter, looked at the center field wall as he went into his motion and uh, and and I think he had a head. He maybe had a head head bob even. You know, I th- feel like we're going to get distracted by baseball, which by the way promises to be about twenty three minutes faster per game because of the pitch clock this year. But friends, speaking of clocks, I think we should stay on the clock. Because Mac, how many clips do you have for us this time? We have around nine clips. Wow, we should get started. Mac, what's clip number one? Okay, clip number one takes us back to March of two thousand three. So this very month, twenty years ago. Costco co-founder and then CEO Jim Senegal was our guest on the Motley Fool Radio Show, and we asked him about competition and growth. Jim, why would a consumer pay a fee to join Costco when, let's say, she can go to Walmart for free? Well, I think the value proposition, uh, uh, clearly the customers are voting at the cash register and our numbers, uh, as you know, in, in the U.S., we average over $100 million dollars in revenues in one of our Costco warehouses, uh, that's the customer measuring uh, or voting at the cash register. They see the value. There's, uh, you notice I didn't mention low cost. I said uh, value. We offer Mm -hmm. great quality products at the best prices around. 
there is a very active debate among Wall Street analysts and different members of the investing community that follow the business of retailing. And that debate centers around whether or not the market for superstore warehouses is oversaturated in the U.S. today. We hope our competition believes that. <laughs> uh, we're, uh, in our view, uh, we can continue to grow our business, and we will continue to grow our business. We think there are a lot of opportunities uh, for us to continue to grow, and we think that uh, the roughly 300 warehouses that we have in the U.S. at the moment um, uh, is certainly not uh, uh, maxed out. We, uh, at the moment, feel that we could at least double the number of Costco's in the United States. Mm. And, of course, we think we can continue to grow on an international basis as well. And David and Tom, here is the 20-year update. Costco stores in the U.S. now 584-ish. So they have almost doubled. Worldwide, they have around 848. Mm. And I'm just checking the stock, Mac. It was somewhere right around, I'm going to say about $40 a share. Then it's at 489 So things have gone pretty well for Costco over the last 20 years. Well, Costco was my first recommendation in Stock Advisor a totally years awesome. ago. So this all comes full circle. There were a couple bad ones in between here and there, but it's nice to have that one. And I don't know if we all know this about Jim Senegal, but he was orphaned when he was uh, as a child, and his mother readopted him when he was around ten years old. And I kind of and the and the basic d- decision she made apparently was a financial one. She couldn't afford it. And I do wonder how much that's woven into his philosophy about I want to make life affordable for people. I want to bring them stability, financial stability. Because really, Costco Costco members see it as more than home to product. It's a it's a philosophy. It's a and it's a subscription. So it's not a bunch of one-offs here and there. I make this purge, right? It's a, it's a partnership between Jim Senegal and uh, fun fact, trivia question for anyone at home. Jim Senegal's stepfather, Giuseppe Siniscali is how he gets the name Senegal because Giuseppe Siniscali changed his name, last name to Senegal in the US. And that's that's Jim Senegal's stepfather. who's adopted by his mother and stepfather, returned from the orphanage at the age of 11. Wow, Tom, you are rocking serious Senegal knowledge there. It's almost like you knew this clip was coming. In fact, I didn't, but you know what is amazing? That's what's even more impressive. I know you didn't because we didn't tell you. What is amazing is two things. A research team that does remarkable work and the power of Google just to double check real time. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of Google, Jim Senegal is still living today, age 87, guys. That was 20 years ago. He was 67 as he spoke. And yeah, one thing that I'll, before we move on to number two, Mac, one thing that has always been distinctive is that Senegal continued to answer his own phone, right? When you were booking Jim Senegal for the Motley Fool Radio Show, you didn't have to go through his peeps. The very first time I booked him was 2002. And I talked to this guy for like four or five minutes, you know, and I'm like, this sounds like this may happen. And then I finally noticed, probably about five minutes into the conversation, I think that will work. And I realize I am talking to the CEO. I have been talking to the CEO the entire time. He answers his own phone, and I had no idea. I thought I was talking to you know their IR, or their pub, some publicist, and that speaks just volumes of Senegal. We've had the opportunity to get to know him a little over the years. He's come to our member events, and he is the most humble. He's just wonderful. I, I am a, I am a Costco fan through and through. I'm a consumer. I'm an investor. Love the company. Top ten. Living founder CEOs, guys. Maybe I, I would. I would have to say I have a question about that. Follow up question, but my follow up question for you to ponder on as I as I reflect on something Mac just said is: What is the other founder CEO, the other leader 
that we've interviewed, talked to, that we know that most reminds you of Jim Senegal? Who, who, who is like a sibling to Jim Senegal in the business world? I'd like to hear what you think. I have an idea of that myself. Mac, I do recall that when Jim retired, he said something like, I don't have to take Mac's calls anymore. Yeah, that was he. He, he actually compared. He compared me to a contaminated milk scare when he was at Full HQ. Someone asked him about like what was the challenge he had to deal with, and they had some contaminated milk. And then at some point, he said that was that was worse than Mac, <laughs> or worse than dealing with Mac's calls. So yeah, I took that as a, a compliment. Tom, who does Senegal remind you of? Jack Bogle. I think they nice. both built something at scale that was consistent subscription essentially, and that was designed around lowering costs for the consumer. And they both had huge impacts on a very, very large audience of Love it. customer And members. they were both playing the long game. And you think about the performance of Costco right up to the 20 years leading up to that interview, Mac, and now the 20 years after. Okay, let's move from Costco to eBay. Now, back in 2002, eBay acquired a, you know, a then little outfit called PayPal, for $1.5 billion in eBay stock. And that was shortly after PayPal's IPO. In 2003, eBay CEO Meg Whitman was on the Motley Fool radio show, and we talked with her about the PayPal deal. And so in as plain English as possible for listeners of the Motley Fool radio show who may well know eBay but not really understand PayPal, can you just in a couple sentences explain the strategy? Why buy PayPal? Well, PayPal was in in many ways the standard for buyers and selling buyers and sellers paying each other on eBay before we acquired the company. In fact, over 50% of eBay.com listings, the sellers offered PayPal. And that's because PayPal was and is an incredibly easy to use mechanism for um, relatively small dollar transactions from an individual to a small business or an individual to an individual. Mm -hmm. And so it enabled um, people like me to be able to accept a credit card when I put things up um, for sale on eBay or accept um, PayPal, um, accept money from one PayPal account to another PayPal account. So, David and Tom, as you know, eBay spun PayPal off in 2015. We look at the market caps today. eBay coming in around $24 billion, PayPal $85 billion. And indeed, that's where I was going to start us, Mac, because we play the market cap game show on this podcast. It's remarkable to think that PayPal is now three times the value of eBay. I mean, they've both done really well. And when you add it up, it comes to over $100 billion of value. A reminder that the internet really was for real back in 2002, <laughs> three, as left for dead as it often was by Barron's Magazine and a lot of, a lot of the, I would say, financial commentators who thought that the internet was toast. Tom? Well, and PayPal was uh, um, over, over $300 billion market cap about a little bit less than two years ago. So it's down from north of $300 a share to $75 a share today. So it, along with a lot of companies in its, of its ilk, have really gotten shellacked here over the last 15 months. And, and that is the 20-year return to where we were back in 2003. A lot of great companies were looking at their stocks down 50%, 70%. And one of the many mistakes that I made over the years, why not revisit it just briefly, very briefly. In fact, you can edit this out if you'd like to. I, I remember writing an article where I compared eBay to Amazon. And I said, I think eBay is going to win this one because they're not carrying any inventory. That's the beauty of the eBay model. It's just a platform. They don't have to take any responsibility for logistics. They don't have to get lawn furniture into a warehouse and then deliver it to somebody's house. That'll never quite work. <clears throat> so, 
I love that, Tom, because I remember for years just feeling that eBay was superior to Amazon, and I used the phrase lighter business model. And I'm now realizing, you know who also has a lighter business model? A business that doesn't really have any business. So um, here, here's my <laughs> Is question. Is that what you're saying about eBay? You're saying, no, I'm not no, I mean, saying I really, that. You know, in, 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 comparison, I, in comparing, I think this is a David G investment point. I'm, I don't want to speak for my brother, but in comparing a lighter business model to a larger consumer audience model, probably a good idea to look at the latter. If you can really captivate tens and tens and tens and hundreds of millions of people, you can give up a little bit of margin to get that type of audience. So knowing what we know now about how this has played out for PayPal and eBay, was it a mistake for eBay to spin off PayPal? Yes, they should have spun off eBay. <laughs> I got to think about that. <laughs> Speaking of spinning off, Meg Whitman is, has spun off into becoming today's U.S. ambassador to Kenya. You may remember she tried to run for governor of California. She spent a lot of money. She did not win. Jerry Brown defeated her. The election was the 2010 election. Tom, we always enjoyed Meg. We got to meet her some. I remember we had supper with her once. Everybody talks about our divided country, but the Democratic president, Joe Biden, appointed the Republican Meg Whitman to be ambassador to Kenya. And I think we got to give her serious credit for the PayPal acquisition. Everyone talks about Bob Iger and Marvel and Pixar and Lucasfilm. Yeah, I get it. Okay, I get it. But let's give Meg Whitman a lot of credit for PayPal. And speaking of Bob Iger, Meg Whitman came from the Disney company. Okay, let's move on to clip number three, Mac. Okay, guys, if you're like me back in 2003, you were probably, you know, relaxing on the weekend and maybe you were making it a blockbuster night. Blockbuster was the dominant movie rental company at the, uh, at the time. Now, we interviewed Blockbuster CEO John Antiaco in July of 2003. At the time of this interview, Blockbuster had a $3 billion market cap, and the stock had beaten the market over the previous three and five years. And so in this interview, you're going to hear Blockbuster CEO John Antiaco talking about competition and technology. You know, a lot of people look at the video world and think it's competitive, and I could say, you know, what business isn't. I think some of the competition, the competitive fears in our business are, are overblown because it's the you know, perception that this technology will um, you know, one day, uh, maybe someday soon, wipe out Blockbuster. We don't believe that's the case. Why don't you believe that? <clears throat> well, a couple of factors. I think the biggest factor is um, when you look at the video business over the last 10 years, the movie business, I should say, over the last 10 years, all of the new channels of distribution have essentially been incremental. So home movie, if you will, um, was a $10 billion business uh, 10 years ago. It's $22 billion today, and it's going over $30 billion mm -hmm. over the next 10 years. And that's because um, you know, both retail and rental movie uh, consumption has grown. Uh, Pay-per-view has grown. VOD will enter the business. It will grow. It's just not going to be a, uh, a situation where um, the next channel is going to wipe out uh, the previous ones. Oh, my. <laughs> I, lo I love the incremental, the analysis that every previous technology has been an incremental um, shift. Mac, that is, I think that's a Hall of Fame top 20 quotes from Motley Fool radio show history. Yeah, I, 
I feel like it's when you're watching the horror movie and you can see like the killer before the people in the movie can, and you want to say, he's behind you, he's behind you. And in this case, he of course has no idea that Netflix is going to start streaming in 2007. So that's only a few years after this interview. And, you know, to his credit, I think, I think it's easy to think Blockbuster did no innovation, but it's how you define innovation and it's how fast you think the future is going to come. And earlier in the interview, he talked about how they did this big revenue sharing with the movie deal, the movie studios. And that changed the experience at Blockbuster because it used to be that you'd go in and there weren't many tapes available. And then once they started sharing revenues with the studios, they always had your movie in stock. So in that regard, Blockbuster was innovative, but probably shouldn't have written off technology that quickly. Well, the pace of change is picking up, I think. I don't think I'm unique in that view. We, we've lived together in Motley Fool history and audio history through the emergence of the internet and the replacement of magazine, magazine stands, print newspaper. I remember being in a business, a media meeting of a bunch of executives and everyone, they went around the table. They're like, I will, I will never cancel my print subscription to the Wall Street Journal. That, that was a unified thing. And it got to me and I was kind of like, I, I don't subscribe to the Wall Street Journal, but I enjoy it. I enjoy the paper. I just don't have that subscription. I was like, okay, Motley Fool, we see you competitively. But point being, these things move fa- and they're moving faster now because you don't have to make as much investment in infrastructure. So one of the major changes that's happening right now is migration to the cloud. And some organizations are going to try and migrate over eight years. That's a little bit blockbuster-like. Others have already migrated. And, and I think moving quickly into the cloud is a very smart move. I do want to make one reference this interview. And I'll just leave it out there and we can refer back to it. If anyone can tell me, to, if you can compare and contrast the voice, John Aniaco to Erwin Mainway. Erwin Mainway. That's what I ask you to reflect on. Uh, who's Erwin Mainway for You will me? have to try and answer that by the end of the show. And if you cannot, I will answer it for you. Speaking of voices, I do want to say, I feel like my voice has changed from some of these these clips, Mac. I feel I I I'm an older man up. now. You've grown yes, up. Yes, but yes. I don't like the right way my voice has changed. I liked my youthful you like voice. I liked youthful Dave. Uh, no, it's all good. It's all good. It's all <laughs> good. gravitas. You know yeah. what I love? I love that you asked him whether whether Blockbuster Tom could be put out of business. I mean, that was such a perfectly timed money question. And looking backwards, visionary. So having heard the CEO of Blockbuster, I know what you're both thinking. You're thinking, okay, that's fine. But what did Pulitzer Prize winning film critic Roger Ebert think about the future of Blockbuster? Mm. And, well, you are in luck from our 2002 interview with Roger Ebert. Buy, sell, or hold, given the encroaching technologies, Blockbuster. I would uh, sell. And why? Because I think that uh, electronic means of transmission are going to eventually replace the trip to the video store. And I think Blockbuster itself is investing in that area. I think there'll be video on demand that will come in by satellite or internet. Buy, sell, or hold. On the other hand, mm-hmm. when, uh, when video stores started, everybody laughed at them, pointing out that lending libraries had gone out of business. And uh, video stores are very popular because people do like to to leave the house and go to the video store. Mm -hmm. It's the same as every office has a coffee machine, but people want to go out to Starbucks. And in a way, both Blockbuster and Starbucks are selling the same thing. They're not selling coffee. They're not selling videos. They're selling the trip to the store. Now, you're just convincing me this is a buy, Roger. Well, it may be a hold. (laughs) 
a, hedge, wow. a beautiful hedge right before our eyes. <laughs> but we know what he led with. We know what he led with. Sell. He did. And, you know, video on demand. Yeah, I guess that kind of came along and replaced things from a satellite standpoint. But then it all became streaming anyway. But don't you love how... How on point I think Roger Ebert was there. It's also funny to think about how he was saying that we enjoy the trip down to the store. Like that's what it's all about. And I, I still do agree with that, guys. When it comes to Starbucks, I totally but agree. Clearly, with that. the world doesn't feel that way about renting videos. I totally agree with that. And I felt that way about Blockbuster back in the day. I tend to be indecisive, and when I lived in D.C. There'd be many a night where I would go to Blockbuster. Yeah. I would spend one to two hours looking for the movie. <laughs> and, and then I realized I don't need a movie anymore because I've used that time already and I would just leave the store. So I'm, I think I'm part of the problem or I was part of the problem. Maybe buying the mega bag of M&Ms or peanut M&Ms on the way out, right? Because <laughs> that's where they made their money, guys. Exactly. <laughs> so guys, if you went to Blockbuster back in the day, one movie you may have rented is Coal Miner's Daughter. Now, that won Best Picture in 1981, and that was based on the life of country music legend Loretta Lynn, who died last October. Now, she was the first woman in country music to become a millionaire. She had 24 number one singles. She had 11 number one albums, and she had one appearance on The Motley Fool Radio Show back in 2002. Okay, well, we're going to go backwards in time to uh, your upbringing for the start of the t of our conversation. You grew up in a log cabin in the mountains of Butcher Hollow, Kentucky, a coal miner's daughter. What was your opinion of your father's work and the money it provided the family? You know, I I thought everybody lived that way, so it didn't uh, it didn't even uh, affect me as far as uh, how we lived. You know, how poor we were or anything like that. I thought everybody was like that until I got away. Mm -hmm. And then I knew I was poor. <laughs> and, and Loretta, by by age 13, you were married to a man, as it turned out, you'd be married to for almost half a century. By yes. s By 17, you had four children, is that right? Yes, and uh, I had them all in school at 20, by the time I was 21. Wow. And uh, then when it come to Nashville, I was 27 when I started singing. And uh, I got pregnant and had twins. So I said to my husband, hey, you better do something because the next one is going to be a litter. <laughs> <laughs> now how did you make ends meet through all of that without money <laughs> mm -hmm. it was very hard mm -hmm. my husband got a a job at a filling station making a dollar and ten cents an hour and uh, the Grand Ole Opry was good enough to let me on the Opry every Saturday night and I made seventeen dollars to be on the Opry mm -hmm. and if I did the second song I got three more dollars boy did that come in handy what a phenomenal American, dearly departed, uh, 90 years of age uh, when she died last October. I, I love that interview, Mac. I'd forgotten that she had, I knew she had a lot of kids. I didn't remember she had four kids by the age of 17. Just an incredible American story. In a lot of ways, sometimes we hear about those in the middle of the country being a little bit more disaffected, rural populations especially not being as connected in. But while that was certainly true of Loretta Lynn, guys, she brought a sense of cheerfulness and humility and, I would say, positivity reflecting back on, on her youth. I guess it's easier when you've had 42 singles and you made your first million dollars, but what a phenomenal life. True grit. Loretta Lynn. True grit, I'd say. And that was one of my favorite Motley Fool interviews in history. No question. 
I have a few others, and I'm wondering if Mac's going to bring them forward today. I, I but even hope if so. he doesn't, there will be other shows where we reflect back on some of the amazing interviews. For example, sitting in Spanish class, Father McBride. Can you can you guess where I'm going with this one? I, I know where you're going with this. We don't have that clip, but we have another clip. Fans of Sir Bob, we won't give his last name. Fans of the man will will be glad to know that we did cover that on a previous episode of did this we? series. Okay, very Googleable, so it's out there. And uh, but Mac, you know, Mac doesn't bring back the same stuff each time, right, Mac? Yeah. yeah. It's always something new from the deep vault of audio gold. I, I've never heard you celebrate Mac like this. Usually I don't need it's to be qualified in some way. Like finally this time, Mac. <laughs> I, I need no celebration. So we have one more clip from that Loretta Lynn interview um, that I want to share where she talks about celebrities and their financial problems. We're always stunned when we when we hear that someone like Billy Joel is filing for bankruptcy. Uh, how does that happen? Is, Who's is that? It, when we heard that Billy Joel. Is he a rock and roller? Yeah, he well, he's he's got his his rock and roll tunes. He's, maybe he's thrown a country song in there somewhere, but he's basically a rock and roller. Who, how about, or how about Willie Nelson? Willie Nelson. You know, we hear Willie Nelson How goes can bankrupt. Willie Nelson go bankrupt? Are, 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 are there people taking advantage of these musicians, or are they just making... Well, now, let me tell you what happens. They go to spending their money on foolishness, and they have a great time. I don't think I have to say more. <laughs> but uh, this is what takes their money. Mm-hmm. Now, Loretta, are you telling us that you've never spent a dime on foolishness? Well, um, you know, after Do died, uh, about a year, I was goofy as heck, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I left the home down here at Hurricane Mills and moved in a house I have in Nashville. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went out with my little granddaughter, and she's she's crazy, too. And uh, <laughs> so me and her went out shopping, and I bought a full-length mint coat. I've never worn that coat. Mm. Never worn it. Uh, I guess I ain't been no place to highfalutin' to wear it. <laughs> Foolishness, guys. I think she was using small f. When she talked I got about confused there in, in that reference. interview, I got confused in that reference. <laughs> yeah, my favorite part of that was debating whether Billy Joel was a rocker, which I would say no. I like Billy Joel, but I think no, he <laughs> is not. It froze me. It froze me. I wasn't yeah. sure how to respond to that. It was a good I, question. I, I, I was tried to question. recall if he had a country song. <laughs> well, guys, sticking with music, we're going to move from Butcher Hollow, Kentucky, to Dublin, Ireland. Bob Geldof mm. was the leader mm. of the Boomtown Rats, which he started back in Dublin in 1975. He's perhaps best known for his humanitarian work with Band-Aid and Live-Aid efforts to fight starvation in Africa. He was knighted for that work by Queen Elizabeth. He's also an author and successful businessman. Now, we had the chance to interview him back in January of 2002, and he talked about the challenges in starting a then-music newspaper and how that led him to music. In the afternoons when I was trying to get this this paper thing happening, I mean, uh, it was impossible. I mean, I tried to... I tried to get 11 phone lines in um, because people had to phone in with their free ads and then I charged for the display ads. You know, that was mm-hmm. that was the gig. Um, I couldn't get 11 lines. I could get one line. So I, w- I was actually not 20 yet. I was 19. So I went to see the minister responsible for telephones who was a, a great Irish intellectual called Conor Cruz O'Brien who still is and one of our great writers but it's typically Irish that they get to be a minister. You know, hello. And then... Um, <laughs> So I get to see Conor Cruz O'Brien, and he said, he said, oh, I think it's a great idea, young man. Um, you know, and I said, look, I'm taking 11 people off unemployment here. 
And uh, he said, well, I can do nothing for you at all. It's going to take five years to put 11 phone lines in. And I said, Minister, what do I do? And he said, well, ah, well I'd, you know, I'd try and bribe one of the unions. Oh, Hello? my golly. <laughs> so I actually did. Um, I, I called up two guys uh, who appeared to be in probably two of the 60 unions who control telephone lines in my mm. area and brought them out to this really lame dinner, you know, because I really didn't have much money and I, I'd never bribed anyone. And I didn't know how to introduce the subject. And I didn't have any money to bribe them with. So, and they were saying, oh, no, you know, there's no way we can put in 11 lines. We might be able to give you one in two years. But, you know. And I said, and I said, well, lads, have you ever, you know, been to Benidorm? Now, Benidorm, I, I don't know of an equivalent, but what's a really bad resort where families go? Really cheap, really tacky, really crap, you know. Well, there's one in Spain called Benidorm. And, uh, you know, and I said... Um, uh, have you ever been to Benidorm, guys? And they said, no. Yeah. And I said, well, yeah, maybe you should go. Listen, I've got some tickets. You could bring, you could bring the wife. And, and they were just looking at me like I was completely mad. So, was that, never was that the, the, f- the first and last bribe of your life? Yeah, forget it. I was hopeless at this, you know. Uh, and uh, so that was the end of that. So, hey, I went into music. So that clip never aired on the radio show because... For the NPR show, we had to take long interviews and edit them down. So that's the first time we've ever heard. Wow. That. You edited that out? Yes. Ah, oh. but it reappeared. Yes, well, I know. I know. Years later. 20 years for that. That's mm. how good Bob Geldof was, is there was just too much to choose from. The many things that Bob Geldof is great at is naming children. Do you know the names of any of his children? I don't. Would anyone like to take a shot? Mac. <laughs> Little Pixie Geldof. Little Pixie. Peaches Geldof. Fifi Trixie Bell Geldof. Heavenly Harani Tiger Lily Hutchins Geldof. Oh wow. my gosh. Those are the four daughters of Bob Geldof. So a creative genius on many fronts. And also, I just uh, love the minister telling him to bribe. I mean, <laughs> just thinking quickly back through the Ten Commandments, I don't remember thou shalt not bribe. So I'm thinking that was legit. It seems to me we should do a better job of celebrating people who are truly, deeply, intellectually engaged in the world around them. If you think of where the Boomtown Rats, Bob Geldof, and all of the things that he's chosen to be involved in, at any point along the way, you could you could take another side of some position that he's taken. But there there is somebody who has thrown himself into the world in an attempt to make it better. And the aim of The Motley Fool is to make the world smarter, happier, and richer. And I celebrate the foolishness of Bob Geldof today. Yeah, beautiful. And this is definitely a cliche, guys, but Bob Geldof, 71 years young. So, guys, as we wrap up baseball season gearing up, there's a lot of change with the 22nd pitch clock. So it got me thinking about change agents in baseball. And it got me thinking about an interview we did with baseball promoter Mike Vack, the son of the legendary Bill Vack. Now, if you don't know the name Bill Vack, He's best known for signing Eddie Goodell in 1951. Goodell was three feet, seven inches tall. He made one plate appearance. He walked on four pitches. Now, Mike Veck is Bill Veck's son. He's the co-owner of several minor league baseball teams. And, well, he had his own creative attempts at marketing. Back in March of 2003, so this month, 20 years ago, Mike Veck talked about his most famous promotion, Disco Demolition Night. In 1979, the, the, the White Sox were not uh, really a very exciting ball club to watch. The 
They had a rescheduled twilight doubleheader against the Detroit Tigers on July 12th. Mm-hmm. And there was a disc jockey in Chicago by the name of Steve Dahl who had uh, um, started uh, blowing up disco records on his morning broadcast on WLUP. Uh, the first time I heard it, I called him up. I said, would you like to do that in person? And uh, so we scheduled it for Thursday night, a rescheduled um, a rain out you know, a twilight doubleheader, and invited everybody in Chicago to uh, bring a disco record, get in for 98 cents, and 100,000 people came to 35th and then Shields, 100,000 people. We had 60,000 people inside, 40,000 people outside. Wow. <laughs> After the first game, we blew up 12,000 Donna Summers records and Casey and the Sunshine Band, um, which was great theater until ten or 15,000 kids decided to appear magically on the field. As some of your listeners might imagine, it's very difficult to play the second game of a doubleheader with 15,000 people on the field. Um, we forfeited the second game thanks to a tremendous performance by Sparky Anderson. And uh, the next day I was gone. I didn't know what a slow uh, news day meant until Friday the 13th of July, 1979. Mm. But the date, shall we say, was very appropriate. <laughs> I didn't work again until I went to Tampa Bay 20 years later. A phenomenal thing to think back on, Mac. I really had forgotten Disco Demolition Night. I definitely remembered having Mike Vec on. I think he'd written a book about how business should be fun or your corporate culture should be fun. That was our ostensible reason for having him on our show back then. But yeah, wow. Anybody who's going to, any, 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 anything that's going to blow up Donna Summer albums. I'm glad it failed. I mean, Casey yeah, I and have the Sunshine say, Band. I, I mean, have to say, I never, I, I was, that never really resonated with me. The whole concept of disco sucks. I'm like, <laughs> I, I just don't quite get that. Maybe I'm an an island. I don't know, but I that that one. I was glad that that one kind of fell apart out there. I agree. I have a soft spot for disco. I like if a BG song song comes on, I listen to it much to my wife's chagrin, but I I have a soft spot for the BGs. Well, the BGs may be an outlier. You you could I think you don't have to love the BGs to love disco. I remember at one point one of the one of the BGs apologized. <laughs> this would be like 15 years ago. I can one of the BGs brothers came out I was like I, I'm sorry for what we did. So Mike Vack essentially as he said gets excommunicated from baseball. Mm. But he comes back, and to his credit, or maybe to other people's chagrin, he is still at it. But this time, no disco, no demolition. It's a much quieter promotion. Another Mike Vec promotional idea. Mimes performing instant replays between innings. Talk about that, Mike. That's my all-time favorite. Um, we hired five mimes. I didn't realize that uh, in Central Park, you know, mimes jump out of the bushes all the time. People don't <laughs> kill them. They just kind of are intrigued by them. We uh, had a close play in St. Paul in the fifth inning, as I recall. Five mimes jumped up on top of the dugout recreated the close play at first, and there were 6,329 people sitting there in absolute stupefied silence. It was tanking beyond belief when suddenly a kid in the front row threw a hot dog. The crowd followed suit. Pretty soon they were throwing everything that wasn't nailed down at these mimes. In the seventh inning, they said something that wasn't mime-like. And um, we sold 26,000 hot dogs to a crowd of 6,000 people, <laughs> which is gastrointestinally impossible. <laughs> it, was, it was quite a night. And the following year, we tried to come back with a mime as a terrible thing to waste, but the mimes would not come back. 
What a fantastic storyteller Mike Vec is. Yeah, I was checking just to see how many Major League Baseball games, by the way, have been forfeited. That doesn't happen very often, but on August 10th, 1995, the Dodgers gave out baseballs to paying customers as they entered Dodger Stadium for a game against the Cardinals. The fans, by the seventh inning, were interrupting the game, throwing baseballs onto the field again in the bottom of the ninth. Um, I'm reading now from Wikipedia. The first Dodgers batter, Raul Mondesi, was called out on strikes, ejected by home plate umpire. Tommy Lasorda runs out. He's arguing with, he's abusing the umpire. The Dodger fans, fueled by a series of close calls, again, threw their souvenir baseballs onto the field. The Cardinals just left due to safety concerns. I remember seat cushions at one point. Some game, everyone was throwing their seat cushions on the field. Generally, probably, probably a good idea to be very thoughtful about what you hand out to 28,000 people who also have access to concession stands. <laughs> yeah, It's all coming down to freebies that you're giving people as they walk in your stadium. Be careful what you hand out. And that may not have been his most misguided idea. And another part of the interview that we won't air, but he talked about vasectomy night and how the idea was that you would get a free vasectomy. And that promotion never happened. In fact, it only lasted about an hour because the outcry was so intense. But I love Mike Veck because he, he just goes for it. Well, I would say Mike Veck is uh, an unbelievable promotional mind, if you think about it. I mean, he should, there should be Veck. Maybe there is Veck Incorporated. I'm right now on his Twitter page. So he has, I see that he has a Twitter account. But if anybody needs a promotional idea, obviously, that, that would have been a great subscription business for him to run. Just Veck.com. What's, what's your industry? What's your product? And who are you trying to reach? And then I'll just send you three ideas. And I recommend being very careful about all of them. (laughs) I love that. Well, we're very near the end of our time. But Mac, I asked you this last time. It was, again, about three years ago, just before the pandemic, when we last did Blast from the Radio Past. I asked you, and I'm going to do it again right now, Mac, why did we do this this week? Well, I don't know if my answer has changed much, because I think everyone has a story. And we're all about um, making the world happier, smarter, and richer. And you hear these insights and you hear how people are thinking at the time. And for me, it brings to mind that old adage about history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And so understanding history, understanding how people saw the future back in 2002 and 2003 makes us smarter today. Love it. It also lets us show off a deep vault of audio gold. And Tom, in particular, Max started rocking things that never aired. He's sitting on an even deeper vault than I realized. Mm. It's a very powerful position to be in, to be able to select what you want to bring to the world. It makes me think that what we previously called the Motley Fool Radio Show, and whereas it was billed as the two brothers, David and Tom Gardner, this has actually all been about Matt Greer. Mac Greer has been controlling everything that you've experienced in Motley Fool Audio. And that's why someone, please, I plead with you to step forward. And on behalf of Erwin Mainway, Erwin Mainway, some, Mainway someone take on MacGreer.com. I'm leaving that mysterious. People can Google Erwin Mainway and re-listen to the show and the interview with the blockbuster CEO, M-A-I-N-W-A-Y, Erwin right. Mainway. And, and John Aniaco and listening to the tone of their voice, I heard some similarities there. But all of this could be brought together on a single URL, MacGreer.com. If someone buys MacGreer.com, to me, that is both 
a sign of the apocalypse and it's a very bearish sign. It means that we we have more money to burn than we uh, even thought. So even Macrier himself won't purchase Macrier. It's not worth it. I I know the guy and he's overrated. Well, one thing's for sure here at conclusion, guys. I'm not going to let three years pass before we do this again. So the fourth in our long-running, beloved, blast from the radio past episodic series. Well, I want to thank my brother, Tom. Tom, thanks. Look forward to seeing you again in less than three years. <laughs> and I want to thank Mac Greer, our celebrated longtime producer. Mac, you made this show. Thanks. Thanks, David. Go Astros. And we three turn and thank you for suffering fools gladly this week. Have a great week ahead. Fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.